I confess that after divorcing my Mormon husband, I fell behind in my child support payment and he tried to have me put in jail. I confess that I went to Las Vegas with a friend to gamble and drink shortly thereafter, shooting dice in a drunken fog. I won $40,000. I abruptly paid off my ex with my ill-gotten gains, and I have never told him or my children, no adults, how I got the money. Welcome to the Bedpost Confessions podcast. Bedpost Confessions is an Austin-based live storytelling series featuring smart, sexy stories. The highlight of each show is the participation of the audience members who have the chance to share their own secrets, wishes, and regrets in the form of anonymous confessions, which are then read aloud during the show. The performance you're about to hear was recorded on June 18th, 2015 at our first unspoken show. The theme was loss and gain, with stories about parenting, growing up, confusing childhood experiences, and death and new life. Andy Campbell told his story about negotiating a known sperm donor agreement and coming out about not being, quote, the dad to his mom. Here is Andy with Not Grandma. One. So what happens if, God forbid, both of you die? What then? The three of us were sitting in Prospect Park, putting the finishing touches on what would be a binding legal agreement between us. Rebecca and Emily looked at me a little blankly, and then at each other, and then back at me. Their faces were grim. I admit, it was such a horrible thing to think, much less say out loud. But this had been bothering me since the last meeting that we had, and I just had to get the question out in the open. And then Emily spoke and said, well, guardianship could go to you if you want it. No. Because I had asked the question, I already knew the answer, you see. That no was the irreversible cut. It was the signal to myself and to them that even in the face of disaster, I wanted nothing to do with what we nominally call fatherhood. Help them get pregnant by donating my sperm? Sure, fine. I can be Uncle Andy. I'm okay with that. I'm good at giving presents. And yes, I can harbor the delusion that at some point in the future, I will take this child out west on a road trip and go camping in the Grand Canyon. We will do that. But to have this tie to fatherhood, it just wasn't for me. See, just like sex and gender, there's paternity and there's fatherhood, right? Sex is that kind of chromosomal, biological, hormonal soup of stuff that either declares that you are quote-unquote biologically male or female, and big fucking air quotes there, and gender is that soup of social and like... um behavioral constructions that help you to be either more masculine or more feminine. And if we think of paternity and fatherhood the same way, paternity is that mess of chromosomal, genetic, um, quote-unquote, biological stuff. And fatherhood, by the way, um, paternity is the kind of thing that's answered at the end of a Maury Povich episode, right? <laughs> Fatherhood, on the other hand, is that social role that you step into with more or less grace, with more or less awareness, more or less kindness, and more or less sense. 
You see, when I said no to the possibility of ever taking this phantom orphaned future child, <laughs> I was making a distinction. I was clearly not dad. Two, my relationship as a known donor to this Boston family, which includes two grown women, Rebecca and Emily, who love each other, and now two children, Zari and Bea, is the source of good-natured fascination to new friends that I meet. And it is old hand at this point to my nearest and dearest. Usually, I prefer not to talk about the emotional mechanics of this relationship, and, and, and instead I tell a harrowing tale of daring do, of like sperm counts and actually being a sperm donor, but not tonight. My decisions for being a donor are personal, at once childishly simple and psychologically fraught. I love my friends, and my friends are queer, and like me, they are not wealthy. In vitro fertilization costs around $12,000. That's without the cost of the donor's sperm. And pregnancies already cost nearly that much in doctor's visits, hospital stays, blood tests, and the like. I want desperately for queer people, and I'd add infertile straight couples here, to have the autonomy and procreation that's afforded to everyone else. So they wanted to have a baby, and let's be honest, they asked me for something that I give away for free every fucking day. <laughs> Seriously, the most challenging part of being a sperm donor was waiting the four days until I made my donation and not masturbating in those four days. Girlfriend was irritable, okay? As we began to hammer out the legal details of our known donor contract, Rebecca or Emily would call me and say, well, what do you think about this? Or do you want any input here? It's really your decision, and I'm fine with whatever you choose. And no, I don't have an opinion on that, became my go-to answers. Rebecca and Emily, you see, they're kind people. They understood too well that there was a person on the other side of this contract and transaction. For my part, I was just incensed for them that they even had to consider someone else in this process. Three, I waited to tell my parents about being a known donor until the kid was born and the paternity adoption papers were signed and sealed and delivered. To this day, I'm still unsure if that was the right move to make. My dad, ever the pragmatist, took it in stride. Oh, he said, great, cool. That's it. <laughs> he, is, he is a wonderful person. He is a man of very few words. My mother, who is like a more middle class, more shy Ina Garten, was more difficult to read. And by the way, that is not a backhanded compliment. That is like a full scale compliment. I fucking love Ina Garten. Yeah, it's okay. We can clap at that. Okay. Um, her joy was palpable when I began telling her that I had already decided to be a known donor. And then when I told her that the kid was already born, her expression changed. She was still happy, but also somehow robbed. She was just told the good news and all of the fun, the excitement of prepping and leading up to the birth, well, poof, that was gone in an instant, almost like it had never existed in the first place. That moment was also an open acknowledgement between us that I had withheld something very important from her something which I had never expected to do. There were rarely secrets between us growing up and even now. I mean, she was the first family member I formally came out to. I told her that the kid was named Zari. I told my mom her birth weight and that both the mothers were doing well. I told her that I was happy and excited for them and 
Finally, I told her that I was not going to be the child's father. Another irreversible cut. But this one is still sinking in. No, I am not the father, I remember her telling her weeks later in the car. And it means also that you are not grandma. Four. Three months after the birth, I flew out to Boston. Before leaving, my mother handed me a bag filled with presents, toys, books, and a quilt that she had made. I had only gotten the baby a small wooden toy. It was barely $9.95. <laughs> For being not grandma, she was certainly acting like one. I took only from her bag what I deemed aesthetically worthy and gave... <laughs> Gotta maintain a sense of self and gave the rest and gave the rest to goodwill. Faced with I never told her that. Faced with my mother in a bag of gifts, I couldn't bring myself to say, no, this is inappropriate. It is, I think, what I should have done. The few people I know who've been through this process told me that the nature of the contract between the known donor and the family maintaining and modifying it would be the most time-consuming and emotionally difficult thing about this process. My therapy group here in Austin told me that I wasn't prepared for the emotional bomb of actually meeting the kid for the first time, and surely it would be hard to square my decision once I had met Zari. They were all fucking wrong. The hardest thing about not having a child is letting your parents know that they don't have a grandson. I plan on having no children. I have a sibling, and he's not likely, for various reasons, to have kids either. My mother gave me a bag of presents, and she said, here, this is for the baby in Boston. But she might as well have said, take this, because I know it's my best shot. Five, it doesn't help, by the way, that elsewhere in our family tree, there has been a similar yet altogether different situation where a grandmother has been alienated from her grandchild. My cousin Chris had a kid with his high school sweetheart, but their relationship didn't work out. Soon afterwards, he went to war. He didn't come back. Sadly, in such a situation, the guardianship rights of the slain soldier don't transfer to his or her parents. My aunt's grandchild is, for her, a very real and lasting physical manifestation of her son still on earth. Yet she is at the whim and will of people who are not connected to her by blood, and this has driven her and the rest of my family insane. I tell you this because I know that you know that families are echo chambers, and sometimes you can't avoid the sound. Six, I try not to like photographs on Facebook of the kids in Boston. What happens inevitably is that I'll like something that's legitimately cute, as I would with any fucking baby picture on Facebook. I'm not, I mean, I don't want kids, but I'm not dead inside, right? <laughs> and weeks later, I find the photograph as the background on my mother's iPad or desktop. My gut drops every time I see it happen. In these moments, I know that she longs for a connection to these two tiny human beings. And I feel guilty because I am Uncle Andy and because I have a connection with them and she doesn't. And most likely, in fact, I am perfectly sure of it. She wants it more than I do. I wish it wasn't like this. I wish she would just get it 
and make her own irreversible cut. But instead, she'll reserve her ask, so how are the kids in Boston doing for those sparkly moments between us? When my love and affection for her trump my desire to give that family space, privacy, and autonomy. Once, tearing up in the car, she asked me, what's so wrong with having another pair of grandparents? I mean, what do these people have against us? She had a point. My mom is quite simply amazing. And my father is kindly a little stubborn science teacher, so he wins too. I mean, I won that fucking lotto. But it's not you, I had to say, scrambling for the language to communicate that, which is really incommunicable. They already have two sets of grandparents, and I think that's enough for them to deal with. I wanted to say, but I didn't say, even the most wonderful and appreciated grandparents can be a struggle to deal with, to schedule, to manage expectations with, in dealing with the kids after they come back. You know that, right? I mean, you remember that, right? At the center of this stammering and insistent denial of grandparenthood was the contested and unspoken expectation that my mother's reward for raising two boys who have made it, who are alive and well-ish, should be to lavish attention on and dote upon the next generation, which is set against the realization that there is no next generation. Once, in an act of exhaustion, I gave my mother the address of the family in Boston so she could send her gift directly to them. On my next trip out, the two women, whom I count among my dearest friends, sat me down on the couch and had the what the fuck dude conversation with me. A boundary had been crossed and they wanted, in fact, they deserved to know why. And although I could offer them an apology, I could not offer a concrete reason why I caved. The reasons were many and small, like the reasons I decided to do this in the first place. Seven. My mother and I have had several talks since that first one after Zari was born. I expect that we'll have dozens more. She's listened to my reasons for helping this family and my conditions for being involved, but I'm still not sure she's truly heard them. I've told her that when the kids are old enough to start asking questions, everyone's going to be as honest as possible with them about the mechanics of their birth that both Zari and Bea will know eventually that their uncle Andy has a family too, and perhaps even attach their own special significance to that fact, is the hope that my mother holds out. It means that for my mother, at this point, it's a waiting game. Thank you. Andy Campbell is a critic in residence at the CORE program in Houston. He's a fan fave at Bepp's Confessions and usually includes a wild PowerPoint presentation to accompany his story. This time, he went bareback. It is, after all, The Unspoken Show. More at andycampy.com. Bedpost Confessions is produced by myself, Mia Martina of MiaOnTop.com, Sadie Smythe of SadieSmythe.com, and Julie Gillis of JulieGillis.com. Podcast audio production by Ian Danskin of Innuendo Studios. You can find links to all of our websites and more information about Bedpost Confessions at BedpostConfessions.com. 
Find us also on Facebook, Twitter, and now your confessions on Instagram. Until next time, we'll leave you with a few other confessions from the audience. I confess I was incredibly into sex in my adolescent years, but hated my body so much. I never really enjoyed it, like beginning, middle, and end of sex session until my 30s. I don't want teen to 20-somethings to miss out on amazing, fun sex because of stupid body issues. So I talk to them because that's my job. That's amazing. Right on.